the reading of God's Word comes from Luke 23, verses 26 through 43. Give an ear to the reading of God's Word. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to them, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Would you please be seated and would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we look at the crucifixion of Christ. We ask, Lord God, that you would show us more of our need for you, more of the righteousness of our Savior, and that you would, by the work of your Spirit, convict us and convince us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, a few soldiers, this is my soldier, a group of weeping women, a man from Africa, and two criminals go walking into a bar. (laughs) Not really. They don't go walking to a bar, but we do find all of them here in chapter 23 of Luke. A few soldiers, a handful of weeping women, a man from Africa, and two criminals all interacting with Jesus in Luke chapter 23. Now this morning, as you recognize the, the, the tantamount event, the, the, the culminating event of the entire gospel and of this chapter is the crucifixion of Christ on the cross... 
But as we see this morning, there are these five individuals who interact with Jesus throughout the process of His crucifixion. And this morning, we're going to look at these five individuals as they interact with Jesus. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying five, that's going to take forever. No, it's not. We're going to deal swiftly and nimbly with each of these character groups until we finally get to the culminating interaction of Jesus in Luke 23 with the second criminal. Now, as I said, the most important event of this chapter is the crucifixion of Christ. As you heard John speak about last week, Jesus is betrayed. He undergoes this mock trial, the charade before the people, and he takes the place of Barabbas on the cross, and he is indeed crucified. As verse 32 says this morning, he's crucified at the place called the skull. The Hebrew is Golgotha. The Greek is cranium. The Latin is Calvary. And all words mean the same thing the head, the brain, or the skull. It was called that, people say, because it was this very bare hill on which the crosses stood. It looked like the top of a skull. I think it kind of added to the aura of the crucifixion, cultivated a sense of fear in the hearts of those who witnessed the crucifixion. But this morning we're going to look at these five characters and how they interact with Jesus, and the task for us this morning is to ask the question, what does this tell me about my own heart, about the ways that I interact with Jesus? The first character we come to in a chronological uh, uh, pathway through the passage is this man, the man from Africa, named Simon of Cyrene. And we're going to call him the interested observer. The interested observer. Now, the text says that Simon is of Cyrene, which is modern-day Tripoli in the country of Libya. Again, it is in North Africa. And the, the distance between Libya and Israel is at least 1,500 miles by land. It's about the same by sea. And this man, Simon of Cyrene, is now in Jerusalem. We can logically conclude that he is a Jew who has been dispersed to the northern horn of Africa, and he's now venturing to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Maybe he did this every year. Likely he did this every few years, but he finds himself now in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and now his story becomes intertwined with the story of the Lord. As we begin reading in verse 26 and 27, we find that Simon is pulled from out of the crowd and he is tasked with carrying the cross of Christ. Now, in case you're wondering, most people believe that this was not an act of mercy, like, wow, Jesus is having a hard time carrying the cross, let's get somebody to help him. Rather, this was likely a move by the soldiers not wanting Jesus to die on the way to Calvary. Wanting, in fact, to see him crucified on the cross, they realized that he had been beaten, whipped, and tortured, and so they pull Simon in to carry the cross of Christ. Now, I have called him the interested observer because we find Simon in a very interested, interesting position as he carries the cross of Christ. It seems that Simon, as he carried the cross, was following behind Jesus, as we look at the different tellings of this in the Gospels, 
And he was in a position as one who was not in favor of or against Jesus, simply an observer. He was in a position to both see and hear the words and the actions of Christ leading up to Calvary. And I imagine him there as he carried the cross, very interested in the scene that unfolded before him. Now, that is Simon of Cyrene in this story, and let me tell you, he might represent many of us, intrigued by the gospel, interested in who this man is that we read about, wanting to investigate more. And you see, the the issue with interested observers is not that it's good or bad to be an observer. The question is always, what do we do with the information that we gather? What do we do when we find the Lord Jesus Christ or hear from Him as Simon of Cyrene does in this passage? That will be an interesting question as we work through this passage. What does Simon do with it? Now, it's very interesting because church history says that Simon became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways that this is made known throughout the Gospels is in Mark chapter 15, When Mark is recording this very event, he says that one Simon of Cyrene was tasked with carrying the cross. He is the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's a very strange thing for Mark to record in his gospel, isn't it? Unless, of course, there's a significance to Alexander and Rufus. The the early church held that Alexander and Rufus were leaders of the early church in Jerusalem that Mark records these details so that anyone who is wondering, is this crucifixion real? Did it really happen like this? Did Simon actually carry the cross? That Mark would tell them, simply go find Alexander and Rufus. They'll tell you that their father actually carried the cross of Christ. But for us, the question is, what do we do with the information that we gather as we observe the Lord Jesus Christ? Simon is an interested observer of the crucifixion. What's the next group of people that we encounter as we read this passage? Well, that would be the women of Jerusalem. We begin reading about them in verse 27, the women of Jerusalem. And I will call them the sensitive in spirit. They're the sensitive in spirit. Verse 27 says, There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All of the gospel writers indicate to us that these are not women who would have known Jesus, not family, friends, or followers of Jesus. Therefore, he refers to them with this very informal... Well, that's weird because that's a closet. I think that's a change of the air pressure. We'll see what happens. That's bizarre. I don't know whether I should try and close it or leave it. We'll leave it. The women of Jerusalem weeping for Jesus. Mark, are you worried? Are you leaving? Referred to in the impersonal title, okay? 
Uh, and Jesus, as he interacts with them, he says, uh, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Look at what he says beginning in verse 28. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if, they do, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? You see, what Jesus is, he's speaking to these women. He's saying to them, listen, your, your situation is a lot worse than even my situation. Weep not for me. Do not mourn for we, me. Weep for yourselves and mourn for yourselves. This group of women was often present whenever there was a crucifixion. They were those who were opposed to the Roman practice of crucifixion. They saw it as a great travesty against humanity, and they would always show up for the crucifixions to weep and mourn over the Roman practice. And so Jesus says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, weep and mourn for yourselves. Now, the whole description of Christ in verse 28 is a description likely referring to one of two things, maybe both things. Either Christ is looking forward to that moment, the destruction of Jerusalem, 70 AD, that we talked about earlier, where the people are murdered uh, in a grotesque way, and he's warning them, or, and I think probably more likely, he's speaking of an eschatological ending. That is to the daughters of Jerusalem who have not trusted by faith the Lord Jesus Christ, weep for yourselves. I think, I'll just explain to you briefly, I think that door, which the painters are using for their extension cord, there's now air coming in. It's changing the whole dynamic with the closet. So don't worry about it. We'll keep moving. He's saying, weep for yourselves. You find yourselves in this terrible situation. You, not trusting by faith, will one day stand before the judgment seat of God, and you should weep and mourn for that because it is a great tragedy that is about to befall you. Now listen, I, I think this morning we have a good warning from the women in Jerusalem because we ought also to be warned. It's not enough to approach the cross being sensitive in spirit. Let me tell you the ways I think we often experience this. We, we might read or watch a show or a movie concerning the passion of the Christ, see these events of the crucifixion unfolding, and we might say to ourselves, oh, how terrible that is. I feel so sad for what happened to Jesus. There's a great sense of injustice here. My heart is being moved right now. I'm being, my emotions are being pulled, and I, I feel that. But the warning that Jesus gives to these women is the same warning he would give to us. That's not the same as trusting in faith the Lord Jesus Christ. So for those who are sensitive in spirit, who are prone to mourn the events that we read here, who are moved in their emotions, we might hear the words of Christ Jesus saying, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. You face a great judgment. And only will you be saved by faith in Christ Jesus. That is the message that Jesus gives to the women of Jerusalem as they weep for him on his way to the crucifixion. The next group of people that we see in this passage are the soldiers. The soldiers, and I would call them the confident skeptics. The confident skeptics, okay? 
We see the soldiers, and we first see them appear in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. And then later in verse 36, we read about the soldiers again. They mock Jesus, and in his thirst, they offer him sour wine. And they say to him, listen, you're the Messiah, save yourself. If you've got the power to do it, do it, okay? It's a mockery of Jesus. And I call them the confident skeptics because in the soldiers, we see men who only spoke the language of power, okay? Power is what they looked for. Power is what they worked for. And when they look at Jesus on the cross, they see a complete lack of power. Right? They look at Jesus and they see one who is led like a lamb to the slaughter, who didn't raise his voice. They see Jesus and they hear him advocating for others. Father, Father forgive them. They know not what they do. But they're wanting something more of Jesus, maybe to raise his voice in violence, maybe to use the power and authority that he thought he had to do something. But all they see in him is weakness, and so they begin to mock him. They see in him nothing valuable. They pitied him maybe more than anyone else because they spoke the language of power. To them, the cross was folly. It was nonsense. It made no sense, okay? Now, some of us might find ourselves in the category of confident skeptics. We are confident in our own abilities. We have figured out the world. We know how things go, and, and, and we know what things are good and what things are bad, and we have control over our own lives. We will dictate what happens, and to us, there's no place for the cross, okay? Jesus makes no sense in our world. We have no need for Him, and so therefore, He is just a nonsense, makes no sense to us, okay? And so the message of the gospel is important to hear. Uh, why would we ever conclude that we have the world figured out? That we have a corner, we have cornered the market on the way that things work. These are the confident skeptics. Of course, the story moves on, and then we find the two criminals in this passage. Now, you'll note, I have called them criminals, okay? Criminals. I know that some English versions, as you read, as you read uh, Matthew and Mark, will call them thieves. I don't like calling them thieves. This past week, my, my children, as we were getting ready for this passage, one of them said to me, why in the world did they hang a thief on the cross? It seems like a terrible, terrible punishment for such a small crime. And that's exactly right. These, these men were not thieves. I know especially for my kids, I think for all kids, when you hear thieves on the cross, you're thinking like Aladdin, uh, the guy who stole an apple from the marketplace, and you're wondering, why did they do that to that type of person? Okay, these are not thieves. The word that is used in uh, Luke's gospel is kakorgon, which is the compound of kaka, which means bad in Greek, and ergon, which means work. They are bad workers, doers of bad things, Okay. It is likely, as we read the other Gospels and we pull together what's happening at the cross, it is likely that the man to the right and the man to the left of Jesus were co-conspirators with Barabbas, okay? It's very likely that they were involved in this revolt, that they had also murdered people. 
that they were trying to overthrow the Roman authorities by any means necessary, and now they're being crucified on the cross, okay? That's likely what happens here. Now, Matthew and Mark, in their Gospels, they say that both of the criminals, both of the criminals reviled Jesus. The word reviled is a word that means to taunt, to chastise, or to antagonize. Let me just put it like this. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, both of these men, they begin at least by reviling Jesus, okay? By antagonizing him, by taunting him, all right? And that is their disposition to Jesus. And let me give you a brief explanation, I think, of why. Imagine the scene, two men, two men who were involved with a revolt against Rome, who had likely murdered other people, hoping to bring about a revolution, who now between them is being crucified the one who has been called the Messiah, who has a sign over him that says, King of the Jews, okay? Imagine what they're feeling in their hearts. Here is the one who they have been calling the Messiah. Here is the one who many people in Israel thought would usher in the revolution, who would lead Israel over Rome. And yet, as I said, he went as a silent lamb to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. When they pursued action against Rome, he did nothing, so it seemed. Didn't raise a finger. Wanted nothing to do with what they were doing. And now, as they're being crucified on the cross, right beside them stood the embodiment or hung the embodiment of the failed revolution and the failure of Jesus to do anything, so they thought. And so they hated him. They hated him. They reviled him, as Mark and Matthew say in their Gospels. They antagonized him. They taunted him. They wanted nothing to do with him. As we read about the first criminal in our passage this morning, it says in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourselves and us. This criminal is the self-righteous representation, the self-righteous. Now, I know as we read the Gospels, we often find self-righteous characters in the religious leaders of Israel. They're the ones who view themselves so great, and they look at the other people and they think, how terrible are these people? But also we see in this criminal here a subtle sense of self-righteousness. He says to Jesus in verse 39, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. It's written in the urgent imperative voice. That's why we put an exclamation in the English. The urgent imperative voice, it would likely have sounded like this, Jesus! I woke up a few of you guys when I yelled. I saw it. Your heads popped up. Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Save us. Save yourself and save us. Do it right now. In his last fleeting breath, it's a sad scene because he cries out in anger, with a little bit of violence towards heaven, speaking to Jesus right beside him, you had better save us. You must save us. It is necessary for you to save us, okay? And in that imperative, urgent plea, we see his self-righteousness. For what he's actually saying to Jesus is, 
you have to save us. I'm worthy of saving. It's necessary because I, I must be saved. I have to be saved, okay? This is the self-righteous voice of the first criminal to Jesus. Self-righteousness demands something from Jesus. Only sees him as a means to an end. Self-righteousness hates suffering, hates trials and tribulation, and looks to Jesus and demands that he do something. Let me ask you a question as you consider the self-righteous criminal. What do you think you deserve from Jesus? What do you think you deserve? It's a good question. What do you think that he owes you? You think you deserve from God, from Jesus, a good life, happy family, great job, enjoyable, prosperous life? Do you think that you deserve that? Do you think that you deserve saving? It's the self-righteousness in us. We deserve this. We demand it from Jesus. It's the first criminal on the cross, and yet this is not the way we ought to approach Christ. I got this great quote that I love from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, The most damnable heresy that ever plagued the mind of man was that man could make himself good enough to deserve to live with a holy God. Okay? That man could make himself good enough to deserve to live with a holy God. What do you deserve? What do we deserve? It's a good question to ask. The first criminal on the cross believes that he deserves for Jesus to save him. But what about criminal number two? Let me ask you a question. What changes for criminal number two? Because Matthew and Mark, they tell us that he reviled Jesus, but we begin reading about him in verse 40 here. It says, the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? What changed for criminal number two? This man is humbled by grace. I can't tell you at what moment this happens, okay? I don't know in this, the whole story of the hanging on the cross or the, the hours that they were there when this man actually is humbled by grace and receives the gift of faith, but we see the evidence in the words of Luke as he records the end of this crucifixion story. The other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Let me tell you one of the many evidences of the gift of faith. Okay? When we look at us and we look at the fruit of the saving work of faith in us, the saving work of the Spirit in us, one of the many fruits of that salvation is that we see ourselves more clearly and we see Christ more clearly. And isn't that exactly what's happening in verse 40? Right? The criminal says, listen, we deserve death. We're right where we're supposed to be. We're hanging on a cross and that's what we deserve. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. He's in the only place that he ought not be. He sees his own sin he sees the beautiful righteousness of Christ and he confesses as much. You see in his words that it wrecks him inside. 
that he is where he should be, but that Christ is not where he should be. And he sees that Christ deserves glory, honor, worship, for he is righteous. And criminal number two makes a very bold statement in faith. Look at what he says to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that interesting? The the man, the criminal being crucified on the cross at the very end here, as they're all breathing their last breaths, he looks to the man beside him who's about to die, his life be ended, to have no more life in his body, to finally expire. He looks to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What an odd thing to say. But you see, it's only with eyes of faith that he might say this. For the criminal is looking past the cross, past Golgotha, and past Jerusalem, and past Israel, and past Rome, and past this world, and he's looking to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. One that cannot be destroyed by moth or rust. One where thieves cannot steal. One with an everlasting Lord of light who will reign victoriously forever. And he's saying to that king on the cross now, remember me when you come in your kingdom. It's absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. You know, as we think about these words, one author said, No strengthening angel could have been more welcome to the dying Redeemer than these words of intense penitence and strong faith from this man on the cross. You see what he's saying? This is the most beautiful, most welcome sight for the Lord as he's crucified on the cross. This is what he came to do. He came to die that lost sinners might by the work of the Spirit have faith in him that they through his death might be saved. And here this criminal cries out, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. It's absolutely amazing. Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. Let me ask you a question. Where do you find yourself? Are you the interested observer Just checking out, investigating Jesus, great. What are you going to do with it? Where's it going to go? Are you the sensitive in spirit? Do you read the crucifixion? You say, how terrible is that? I feel so sad, but are you not moved? Pray that the Lord God would give you faith, that you would come in faith. Are you the confident skeptic? Let me ask you a question. What is your confidence in? Really, what's your confidence in? Have you thought about it? It's a mirage, an illusion. Are you the self-righteous criminal? I think we can find a little bit of ourselves in the self-righteous criminal. We all can. Do we demand Jesus do something for us? Or are we humbled by grace? Do we come to the cross and do we say, Jesus, I see you. I see myself. Now remember me. I don't deserve it, but by grace, would you save me? This is the gospel message. It's a beautiful moment here at the time of the crucifixion. This is the glory of Christ who came to save, that we who were lost sinners might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for your revelation to us. We thank you for your son Jesus and his death on the cross. And we ask 
as we consider that death on the cross and these interactions between the three groups of individuals, the five groups of individuals, we, we pray, Lord God, that you would convict us by your spirit, that we would see our sinfulness, the righteousness of Christ, and that we would call upon him, that he would intervene on our behalf and we might be saved. We thank you. We glorify you this morning. Our Lord, our God, and our Savior, we pray all this. Amen.